Okay, we are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Uh, tonight, our final event for the 2012 calendar, uh, we will start as we always do. To those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, it is truly a, a pleasure and an honor to welcome Fernona Gomez, the co-author of Lefty, an American Odyssey, to the clubhouse. So thank, thank you, you so much, Fernona. Thank you to be here. Thank you. And uh, th I don't even know where to start because th it's uh, your, your dad and your, uh, had such an amazing life. But uh, since it's almost biblical, I guess we should start in the beginning. So if you can just start with where he, his childhood, and... Your grandfather was a, a cowboy. So if you could just tell a little bit about where your dad came from, that'll kind of set us up for where we want to go. Okay, well, first I'd like to start off by saying um, how the book came about. Yes. You know, the great novelist, uh, the saga writer James Mishner, was a very good friend of my dad because he would go to uh, Yankee Stadium as a fan, and so he watched Lefty Pitts so many games, and he knew Lefty to be a fierce competitor and also the funniest guy in the locker room. And then they would get together after the games, and James would, you know, uh, tell tales of his childhood, and my dad would uh, talk about his uh, beginnings coming out of a dusty California town. And finally, James Fischer said, listen, baseball and Broadway, I mean, and... And, you know, your father being a cowboy, I want to write your story. But, of course, my dad did over 100,000 miles every year after his pro ball career uh, for 40 years. And so they never had time to get together and do all that chatting that's so important. So one day I said to my father, look, I'm out here all the time. I can take a pencil and write down whatever you have to say. You know, let's do that book. Let's get it moving. So I called Jim. Well, Dad put the call in. I talked to Jim Mitchner, and he was gracious enough to give me the entire historical arc. So to get back to your uh, story, why uh, your question, why uh, James Mitchner was so intrigued with his story, is that Lefty, Lefty's growing up in baseball is almost like baseball growing up the way he came up yes he was on he grew up in a, a very small town in California Rodeo which dad said there were 500 people in the town if you counted the cows they had two <laughs> trains one coming and going and there was literally I'm not this is not a joke a haystack that if you rode the express you jumped off into the haystack he grew up as a homesteader um, well, before I get into that, um, I will tell you that his grandfather, uh, his paternal grandfather, uh, was captain of a ship. His name was Juan Gomez, and he sailed from Spain, he was, uh, had leather goods and all, into San Francisco because it was one of the big ports, especially during the Civil War. And his ship was shot from underneath him, burned to the waterline by Confederate raiders because uh, they were prowling uh, the uh, waters so that you wouldn't be bringing um, goods or economic goods to the Union. And so in, with no ship, he decided, okay, I'm in California, I'm going to stay here. So he went north and bought a 
150 acres where he raised horses. And so my father's father, uh, Coyote, grew up, um, you know, raising horses. And at 15, he decided, like so many of the kids around 1875, I am leaving home and I'm going to trail cattle like you see in the John Wayne's movie. And so he, for 10, 15 years as a teenager, he trailed cattle from Bandera, Texas, up the Great Western Trail to Dodge City, Kansas, where, you know, they were just, and then the cattle were shipped uh, to the Chicago stockyards. And that's on, so this really intrigued um, James Mitchell. And then the other side of the family, his mother, uh, mother's side, Mary Jane Williams, his grandmother, and dad knew most all these people, you know, because they would come home. All these people were still living when dad was growing up. Um, she came across um, the plains and entered California with her family in a covered wagon in 1857. They came from Bates County, Missouri, across the Rockies, across the Sierra Nevadas. And then she, she gave birth to this woman named, uh, this child named Lizzie Herring, and who married Coyote. So right then and there, you've got a grandmother coming across the plains and um, a, a father who was a, a cowboy. Two incredible uh, you know, archetypes. Well, a kid growing up in California uh, in the beginning part of the 20th century was like a kid growing up in another country because it was controlled by the Pacific Coast League, and I'm sure you've all heard of that if you're baseball fans. It was a very high caliber. They didn't have, they didn't designate a AAA back then. That wasn't until about 1840, uh, 1947. But it was very high caliber. Uh, minor league team, and because there were so few scouts, Major League Baseball had very, very few scouts, maybe a handful. I think there were two uh, for all of California, Bill Essex, Joe Devine. And so the Pacific Coast League made their money by selling minor league players to the major leagues, which was great for the major leagues without a lot of scouts. And so because of that, in order to keep these teams going from Hollywood, uh, California, up to Portland, Oregon, they had a 202-game season, and they need their fans to come in for the gate receipts so that they could develop these players. So they would not allow the broadcast, play-by-play broadcast, or into California. And at that time, the major league teams only traveled as far west as St. Louis. Okay, so all Murderers Row, all through the 20s, they're only going as far west as St. Louis. And so my father growing up, and this is true of Joe DiMaggio, uh, Ted Williams, all of them, uh, uh, Tony Lazari, uh, Cronin, they all, Bobby Doerr, they all came out of the Pacific Coast League. My dad never saw a major league game when he was growing up. He had no idea what a major league game was. All he knew from the a newspaper, the New York Times, that was thrown off the train as it roared through his hometown of Rodeo that, according to the New York Times, the Yankees were the best. So if the Yankees were the best, then my father wanted to be a Yankee. All right? So maybe if he'd been in, you know, in Boston, <laughs> he would have said, a Boston baby would have said, Red Sox. So the first time he ever saw a major league game 
was when uh, he was sitting in the in Yankee Stadium. He was already Yankee before he saw a major league game, which is amazing. As he said, Renona, I had no idea what I was shooting for. All I knew was I loved baseball. Baseball was my game, and if that was the best, then that's what I wanted to be. It was like going to the moon. So, in order to get your gateway to the major to the mi- uh, minor leagues of the uh, San Francisco Seals, uh, you ha- there. Organized baseball didn't exist. The Hall of Fame didn't exist. The first All-Star game hadn't been played. So the only way that you broke into baseball is like the foundation of baseball that we know of it uh, as it was then. You played hundreds and hundreds of semi-pro games. And on the roster of these semi-pro teams were kids coming up like my dad, industrial league players, Ball players who were who have left the major leagues who are returning. So the kid was faced and coming and competing against rosters that had um, a lot of different uh, abilities on there. Not like today when you have the little league team where second graders are playing basically against second graders. Oh no, I mean Dad was pitch uh, played semi pro games up and down up to Eureka. Sometimes they'd travel. He and his sister, by the way, that was another Hollywood story. His younger sister, Gladys, he came from a family of eight, was had a fastball that was faster than his. Mm-hmm. And when in later years, when he would return from the Yankees, her ball would just knock the glove right out of his hand. And she desperately <laughs> wanted to be a ball player, but being a girl, it wasn't going to happen. So she and he uh, would, you know, uh, get on these old rickety buses and go up and down uh, the coast playing these games. And so he was pitching competitively when he was 12 years old. At 15, he pitched against Satchel Paige. Now, his father, Coyote, was not happy about this because Coyote uh, was the ranch. His father was a ranch manager uh, now in Rodeo out in Franklin Canyon for a 1,000-acre cattle ranch. And... He was illiterate, like many of the cowboys of the day, and he wanted his six sons to go to college. And so he was insisting that Lefty would be an electrical engineer. But my father was passionate. I mean, some he was one of those rare kids that at six, he wanted to be a ball player. He wanted to be um, an airline pilot. When uh, Lindbergh still hadn't made his flight to <laughs> Paris, and he also wanted to be a musician. And you will later learn, I mean, he became, he became all three of them. I mean, he got his commercial license when he was with the Yankees. He would be, uh, sl- in fact, the Yankees slapped a $1,500 penalty clause if they caught him uh, flying. And he, as I mentioned, he, you know, took his sacks on the, um, took his sacks on the road trips. So he played all these semi, um, Pro games, and his he eventually had after high school he left home because his father was so upset that he wasn't taking a scholarship that he had earned to St. Mary's College. But St. Mary's College didn't have a baseball team. <laughs> I was like, "What? I'm not doing it." So he never broke with his dad, but but he did leave home to go to Point Reyes, where the National Seashore is now, because uh, he knew that if he could get himself into Point Reyes. Then many times the teams from San Francisco would come over and play the semi-pro team in Point Reyes. You see, the other 
uh, hindrance of being born in the East Bay like Dad and Ernie Lombardi and all these kids coming out of Oakland. The um, uh, San Francisco Bridge wasn't built then. The Oakland Bridge wasn't built. So you are on the other side of, you know, San Francisco Bay. And actually, the few scouts that would come by, they'd see all these talented kids in the San Francisco playgrounds, like, you know, as I said, Lazeri and, and Cressetti and all. Uh, why are they going to take a ferry across to, you know, find a guy over there? So uh, eventually... Um, he, he did um, sign a contract with the uh, San Francisco Seals, and, but he, it was a four-year battle because not only was it location, but my dad was six foot two and weighed 125 pounds. And they said, one, one of his uh, uh, kids he played ball with said, Lefty was as, Vernon was as skinny as you can be and still be living. <laughs> and, and, and Lefty said, I was so skinny I didn't even cast a shadow. He ate a ton. He just was very tall and skinny. And so when it took him five years to get Nick Williams, who was the manager of the San Francisco Seals, to even contemplate giving him a chance. On top of that, like many of the kids of his era, he was a poor poor kid, although Dad said, we weren't poor, we just didn't have any money. I mean, because they were a homesteading family, you know, they had no electricity, no car, no, uh, no telephone, no indoor plumbing, but there was always chickens and vegetables and, you know, and they all went small game hunting and everything. But when he went for his tryouts, he, he was a left-hander and he was wearing a right-hander's glove backwards. And Nick Williams said, I can't believe you're doing that. And he said, but it doesn't take away from the fun. So he was just determined to make it. And Major League Baseball at that time stereotyped their players, like you see in Moneyball, where they thought that for a pitcher to be effective, you had to be a great big beefy guy around 200 pounds. Well, he's 125. The most he got, could get himself up to was 147. And so um, even when they were trying to sell him, um, the sale price on him dropped to $35,000 because of his weight. And then fate just stepped in because the dead ball era came to an end in the beginning, you know, in the mid-20s, the beginning of the 20th century, when they outlawed the uh, spitball. And with the spitball being outlawed, that then the slash single-style type of hitting that Ty Cobb did came to an end. And what was this football? It was a great big heavy ball that was black. They called it the slobber ball. And when it came in, it, the movements were all very erratic and it threw the hitters off course and they didn't know if they were going to get beamed with it. And of course, players weren't wearing helmets then. So now the new cork ball comes in at the end of the 20th, um, end of the 20s, around 1920, uh, around 25, 26. And this is the ball like we have today, white ball with a cork center. And so now the hitter can see this ball because the spitball, slobber ball, they, it was dark. So now the two main things for a pitcher was velocity and uh, pinpoint control. Well, Lefty had a 100-mile-per-hour fastball, and he had great control. Or, or uh, location. So Jacob Rupert, who owned the um, 
uh, trying to think. I think it was Rheingold Brewery. He heard about this skinny kid <laughs> in California. So if it hadn't been for probably for the um, you know the the dead ball era ending, that wouldn't have been a premium. They needed pitchers to get the ball to the plate as fast as possible because the hitter can see it and to get it over the plate. Well, Lefty could do that. So he decided to take a chance on Vernon Lefty Gomez. And so in 1930, my father put his saxophone over his shoulder and, uh, and he went west and he went east. And he said he had no idea where Florida was, except there was some kind of state hanging over off the eastern end, you know, <laughs> of uh, of the United States. So that it was um, that was his rise. Just out of interest, the uh, from the time you were a child, I know when you were a child, you were you were with your parents at a lot of these, uh, you know, at that time at, at ball games and whatever it was. But all these stories. That you have, that you recount beautifully in, in the book. Are they, this is something you always spoke to your dad about his his upbringing, and uh, was it something he always wanted to talk to you about, or how did, how did, how do you know all this? Basically, a lot well, of people don't know about their parents like this. Well, the reason that I well, yes, I li- I lived so many of these baseball years, and you know, we were raised around baseball because what my mother said when. I, June said, when I married, let Dan married baseball. So we, we went to spring training every year. And we thought everybody went to spring training. It was, it was amazing to us that, oh, some kids don't go to spring training. And, you know, the World Series games and fans were always in our house walking around. And, uh, but it was the, uh, dad wouldn't have sat around telling me all these stories. My father was rarely home. I mean, when I say he did... Uh, over a hundred thousand miles a year, forty for forty years with Little League, Babe Ruth League, the Pony League, the American Legion, and then he was a national representative for Wilson Sporting Goods, and he was became a uh, master salesman. You know, everything he touched, he did well. He just was a tireless worker. Plus, he was talented. But anyway, out of the twenty-two, there's twenty-six major league teams, and. Out of the 22 major league teams, out of the 26 major league teams, Lefty had 22 of the major league adoptions, which means when you turn on the television and watch those guys take the field, 22 of the teams were wearing Wilson gloves, uniforms, bats. You know, that's amazing. So right then and there, you you know he was not home that much. (laughs) And then he had a gift of gab. You know, he's probably the most quoted ball player. He could throw a pitch a quip as fast as a pitch. In fact, he's been nicknamed the Yankee Quipper as opposed to his roommate, the Yankee Clipper. And uh, But in the last, you know, when I called James Michener and he realized that he and Dad weren't going to be able to get together, that's when I said, okay, Dad, we seriously got to sit down and start, you know, going over a lot of these stories. And um, I was extremely fortunate that uh, the having been to so many of these um, baseball events, the baseball world knew who I was, uh, you know, Lefty and June's daughter, and then I had a good relationship with them because the baseball world, like any professional world, is protective of the people who are in it, which they should be. They're just not going to talk to, you know, an outsider. So not because of me, but because of their respect for my dad, and what and and how he had given back to baseball, I could call anybody 
I mean, from Whitey Ford, that, you know, he was one of my dad's players in Binghamton when dad managed, to George Steinbrenner, who said, as long as I own the Yankees, Lefty will have the Wilson, you know, contract. Uh, to Ted Williams that I had lunch with. I mean, you know, and they opened their homes and all the, and also dad and I, you know, walked the lands. We went back to Rodeo. And what I found out that that was very touching to me was because um, if you were a friend of my mother and dad's, they didn't drop you when they, you know, came from obscurity into celebrity. So when I went back to Rodeo and kids and talked to kids that he had gone to school with, my father probably had seen them a year before at they had like the rodeo uh, baseball town club team would get together or or richmond he he was constantly doing benefits okay and he would get into uh when he was on the road with Wilson, which was all the time till the day he died he would call ball players up like jimmy Deshong or or what or whoever Carl Erskine who uh played for him down in Havana. So he was close friends with all these people, and so they welcomed me into their home, and um, and so it was. It was I was very fortunate that way to learn all the stories, and then being a concert pianist, I memorized notes, <laughs> so I could memorize a lot of stories, and and you know, Dad was very uh, square with me as far as he just told me how it was. He said, just write it straight from the hip, whatever I'm, I'm telling you. And when you open the book, you'll see the memo that we sent out to the 350 people. It's, it opens the book. And um, he said, to affect um, my daughter, Vernona, designs our Christmas card every year. And now I find out she knows how to spell. So she and I are going to write <laughs> our, the story. And so... You know, I sent it out to people like Buzzy Bavese, the GM of the Dodgers, and everybody, and uh, just set up telephone calls, or I'd drop by their house. And but all these people that of the 350, they were on our Christmas card list. So I basically took our Christmas card list and called the people up, and um, you know, but but it was not because of me, but because of their close friendship uh, with my dad. It's quite a list of 350 people. Yeah, it's... Uh, and we can get into... Uh, I wish we had months to get into all these relationships, but it, there, there are two relationships that were really special. One is a woman named June O'Day, and the other was with Joe DiMaggio. And whatever you'd like to say about either of those... Well, those. my mother was starring on Broadway in um, a Broadway play, You Said It, uh, when Dad first met her. You know, she was on the stage. She, she was born in Boston, she and her sister, Sunnydale, and my mother's name was Jean O'Day. And um, their mother, uh, Nellie Grady, was Boston Irish, and she, was, um, she campaigned for the women's vote, suffragette, and she was a songwriter. And she married uh, William Schwartz, who was a um, a bookseller and imported toys for Bloomingdale's. He was uh, Lutheran um, from Zanesville, Ohio. And Sonny and June were on the stage since they were four and five years old, uh, respectfully. By the time my mother was 12, she, 
her acting and dancing and singing was Broadway caliber. And at that time, and still today, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, called the Gary Society, doesn't allow minors to be on the stage after 9 p.m. So you can see if you were going to be on the stage, and they were on the vaudeville stages, crisscrossing America, and, you know, um, performing for, like, with George M. Cohen for the returning World War I veterans and et cetera, that they were running down fire escapes and everything <coughs> to get away from these Gary Society <laughs> officers because they would pull you out of a show, slap a penalty on the producer. And so when they were 12 and 13, uh, my mother was uh, working for, like, George M. Cohan, um, in Billy and Richard Rogers, and they all thought she was amazing for girls 16, 17, but she was really like 12, 13, and 14, you know. And she her, she got her break from um, Jake Schubert, the two brothers who started the Empire, in a night in Paris. And uh, from there, her career just uh, took off. And so when my dad met her, she was, uh, as I said, starring in You Said It, and he was quite taken with her. She didn't know anything about baseball, and she could care less about learning about it. And so when he took her to the first baseball game, by the way, she insisted that her mother and father come because she had heard that baseball players were lechers. <laughs> so he left three tickets at the ticket gate, and... You know, he had won a game maybe a month before, but of course she saw him lose two to four in a ten, tenth inning, in ten innings to uh, Detroit. And she said to him, "Don't worry, honey, you'll beat them tomorrow." She thought he pitched every day. <laughs> so then she, beca- after going out with him, she became a great baseball fan, and, and really for the rest of her life, she was a great baseball fan. And so he took her to a ga- to another game, and Charlie Garinger hit, um, I think, a, broke, he, he had a no-hitter going, and Charlie Garinger um, hit, a, I think, a triple. And so he got, after the game, he comes to these, uh, over to the box seat, and she said, how long do you have to be in the big leagues before you realize you have to pitch Garinger low, not high? And he said, I liked her better when she thought I pitched every day. (laughs) But anyway, um, and so, you know, uh, then she went in, she was, uh, she was in George Gershwin's Up the I Sing, the first Broadway musical comedy to win a Pulitzer Prize. And in fact, her dancing partner was um, George Murphy, who later went on to be the California U.S. Senator. And they used to practice their tap dancing routines in the bathroom of George Gershwin's Riverside apartment because the um, the taps would echo off the uh, tile floors. And so, yes, um, you know they had a they had a absolutely marvelous marriage. It's fifty six years. There were ups and downs in it that you will read when uh, he. Took off to have a fling when he was supposed to be doing a Gillette commercial. I guess he was out in California and on the golf course with um, Bing Crosby. But that whole story—it's—it's it's amazing with the perfect crime and and so when you read it, it's—I mean, uh, we threw it in there. 
And uh, so, yes, and then she raised her four children around, um, around baseball. And, but she was a very independent woman. Naturally, she would have to be, you know, when your husband is constantly on the road. And the one thing that I truly admire about my mother beyond her um, having her own career is when I tell you my dad was never home, I mean he was almost never home, and I never heard her once complain. Not to be, she didn't do that to be a goody-goody. Being on the road and traveling, you know, on trains and all, and being with shows, she knew that if she married a ball player that he had to be on the road to um, be successful. And so we never heard her say, when we would be snowed in in Connecticut or wherever, and he would call up from... Haiti, <laughs> doing something in Haiti. It's hot as hell down here. <laughs> meanwhile, you know, she's got four kids who aren't going to school, and the snowplow has to get us out and everything. She never complained, where's your dad? So we grew up thinking it was perfectly natural for, you know, our father to be working. And she just laid it out for us. You know, if you want food on the table, your dad has to be working. And I was doing a talk on radio, and I was telling this fellow that when I went to Tufts University, they had a father-daughter weekend, and I was the only freshman whose father wasn't there and didn't bother me in the least because I knew my dad was at the World Series. But the other fathers were so bummed (laughs) because they came up to me and they said, you know, we have to go to these events. But we thought, oh, well, Lefty Gomez will be there. We'll talk baseball. So they were having a, a – yeah, my, uh, my mom and dad had a very good, um, great marriage. And she said Lefty was still married uh, to her after 56 years because she was still laughing at his jokes. So, But she traveled all over the world. When she died, she had only not been in the Galapagos Islands. She had, you know, lived or been uh, wherever. So – you know, all over the world. She loved, and she didn't go travel to say she had been somewhere. She probably wouldn't even tell you if you met her, but she loved meeting people and talking to them. And after they had gone around the world in 34, after going to Japan with the uh, 1934 Babe Ruth uh, trip, she, she got the traveling bug, and she loved meeting people and seeing how they live, and she spoke Italian because she had studied opera and Spanish, so she was, could be very conversant with people. And um, So he was extreme. She, she was lucky to marry him, and he was very, very fortunate um, to marry a woman who had, a, who had a lot of confidence and her own self-worth, and so she could be Juno Day, but also be Mrs. Lefty Gomez and, you know, feel very... She wasn't eclipsed by his fame. And, and of course, you know, uh, so they just had a very good uh, working marriage. So we were very fortunate as children. And then if we can move to another very important relationship that he had... You open the book with this really amazing story about your parents and Joe DiMaggio. You can either tell that story now, or people can read the book for that. Or, but anything about DiMaggio and your dad? Well, in 1962, the uh, New York Giants, who you know, who came west like the Dodgers did, 
<clears throat> decided uh, that they would have an old-timers game in uh, Candlestick Park, which if they now have a new park, the AT&T Park in San Francisco, thank God, because you know you can get blown away in Candlestick, Candlestick Park. And so they decided they would have a three-inning old-timers game against the San Francisco Seals. Um, no, I'm saying this wrong. They, they would have a, an old-timers game the, giant, New York, the San Francisco Giants would now play uh, alum, alumni of the San Francisco Seals. And what brought the fans to the game was the fact that this was the first time that Vince, Dom, and Joe would be in the outfield, all the DiMaggio uh, brothers playing. And Joe was quiet, as everybody knows. I mean, he didn't say too much, but he didn't have to because he talked with his bat, all right? Uh, but around my dad, naturally they had room for seven years, and they had a lifelong friendship. I mean, he probably was, all his brothers say, that Lefty was closer uh, to Joe than, you know, than even the brothers. Um, he could relax because his dad said to be Joe DiMaggio was very, very difficult. Not at the plate or in center field, because he is probably one of the greatest, he is one of the greatest players that ever lived. But the press expected him to be perfect at all times. That's very hard to live, live up to, you know, in your off time and, and on the field time. But it, as Dad said, I could be silly. I, I was just a pitcher, you know. I wasn't up at play. I wasn't uh, Joe DiMaggio. So I could afford to be silly. And also, Dad had a, a gift of gab. So when they would go places, you know, Dad would entertain the crowd, and, and yet Joe could you know, join in the laughter. In fact, the way Lefty started be, being a professional rock and tour was in 1936 when uh, Joe came out of the PCL and uh, he was an incredible rookie, as you know, and he was receiving all these awards in New York. Okay, the first time, the first banquet that he goes to where he's being lionized as being the greatest rookie probably that ever came up to the Yankee roster, he gets up after, you know, they present him with all these uh, trophies and awards, and he says, thank you very much, and now my roommate, Lefty Gomez, will say a few words. <laughs> well, my father was actually shocked to his toes. And he, what? And so, and this happened two or three times after that, Lefty decided, I've got to, you know, I've got to have a lot of stories ready, and that's how, you know, a humorist is born. And also, uh, before we uh, began this podcast, I was telling you that uh, my, when my dad married my mother, uh, her family had a family home, and plus her grandparents had another home right next door in Lexington, Massachusetts, which the houses are still standing. They were in the family for 60, 70 years. And so... Joe, when the Yankees would uh, play the Red Sox at Fenway, a lot of the ball players, Babe Ruth, Babe Dahlgren later on when Lou took himself out of the lineup, Joe DiMaggio, they would um, come out from Fenway and, you know, come over to Mother and Dad's house, uh, June and Lefty's home, uh, their their home, you know, because they lived at the Ansonia during the uh, baseball season, and they'd have, you know, steaks and lobsters, play a game of croquet, uh, poker and everything. And so Joe, uh, many times uh, during the season, if they were back in New York, 
uh, they would just, and they, they had an off day, they would just get in the car and drive over. And so what the ball players and Joe particularly and before him, Babe, liked about it was that uh, Lexing- the Lexington home was on a street like all of us live on, you know, and, and it was aware from, away from the glare of the spotlight. So they could relax, you know, and um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that I think uh, Joe and he bonded uh, so well together, that he could just be Joe. And he was, he was very funny when he, real, when he was with someone that he knew what, it wasn't going to be in the, on the ne- evening news. Naturally, whatever he said, they would say it's off the record, but he'd read it in print the next day. And, uh, of course, you probably all know the Superman story. Joe liked to read Superman comics. And so they were walking down, I think it was in Cleveland, and he said, the first time he says to Lefty, do you know what day it is? And Lefty said, yeah, it's Wednesday. No, 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 this is the day that the new issue of Superman comes out. And my father said, yeah, so. And he said, it's over there. So they were walking by a kiosk, and he wants my father to go over and buy it because if Joe DiMaggio buys it, it'll be all over the United States, you know? (laughs) And so my father, he got away with murder with Joe. You know, he said, sure, I'll go over. So he goes over, and he takes the Superman comic out. And by now, of course, these fans are all around Joe asking for his autograph. And my father takes the Superman comic out. He says, is this the Superman new issue that you want? And Joe says, no, you know I wouldn't read Superman. So my father takes it and puts it back on the newsstand. So he's not, he's just waiting around for Joe to sign the autographs, and then Joe motions him again. You know, go buy, go buy the thing. He's giving him the eye. So my father finally goes over and buys it and stuffs it in his uh, raincoat pocket, and he says, and we go to the hotel, and Joe spends the night with Superman. <laughs> and um, so, you know, he could relax with Lefty. And then, of course, after baseball, they would be in a lot of the charity golf tournaments. One of the thrills of my brother, uh, my eldest brother, Gary, is when they his team won the basketball championship in Connecticut. Uh, Dad asked Joe to come up from uh, Florida. And, of course, he showed up at their first sports banquet. So, you know, when he walked in, it was just pandemonium and... Uh, so um, they had a very close. They had a very close relationship, and um, it was very touching when Billy Martin learned that my dad had died because he had dad had a very close relationship with uh, Billy Martin, who we thought was one of the greatest strategists that who ever lived. So Billy said that he got on a plane because to go to the wake, Lefty's wake, and he wanted to be the first one to sign the. Memoriam when he walked in because Lefty was number one with me. Okay, but when he got in there, Joe had beaten him to it. He said Joe's, DiMaggio's name was on it, you know. And uh, so, and talking about Billy Martin, uh, he called Dad Omar the tent maker because when Dad would come in to um, measure them all up for uniforms, you know, in Dad's day, you got small, medium, or large, and they just threw it at you. But here, as he said, they have ice cool jock straps, you know, that everything has to be form fitted. He had to go naturally to how to learn how to tailor these guys because they want to look great on TV. So Billy would always be complaining about the, the 
the uniform. It doesn't fit this, this is, and look at the armpits and the crotch, and it's too long. And so Dad would just chalk it all up, all right? And then he'd say, fine, Billy, anything you want. He'd chalk it up, and then they'd run off onto the field to do infield practice, and Lefty and Pete Sheehy, the clubhouse man, would just stick it into a back locker and lock it. So when Lefty came back in about three weeks, he'd go and do his, you know, on the road, he'd come back and he'd open up the locker and he'd wipe off all the chalk and bring it out and hand it to <laughs> Billy. And Billy would say, why the hell couldn't you have done this in the first place? This is a perfect fit. Look at this. It fits great. He hadn't done anything to it. You know, <laughs> Lefty just knew that when ball players are under the tension of a game, because he had been a ball player, that as he said, you know, first they're a star and then they're a tailor. As you know, they're telling you how to make the uniforms, <laughs> but it's just because of the tension of a World Series or a tension of the game. And he always said, don't fit a ball player when he's going 0 for 4. You know, because everything's going to be wrong. <laughs> but um, so Joe and he had a very good. Uh, they really loved each other. They really did. Very very close relationship, and it was built on. Joe DiMaggio says, you know, when I was talking to him for the book, he said it was built on uh, respect for each other's uh, ability on the field. And um, and also that Lefty did not uh, talk about anything that you would uh, mention to him. And he got that. That's been said by so many people. Julia Ruth, Babe's daughter, said, you know, if you tell Lefty something, it stays right there with him. People have said to me, you must have heard so much baseball gossip around the table. No, nothing. Really. If, if a ball player or anyone told Lefty something, he didn't tell my mother about it. That You just told it to him. And I really think, or what we all think in the family, is that he got this from his father, Coyote. You know that cowboy coat of the West where you judge a man as you see him? Uh, Phil Rizzuto said that to me. He's my brother's godfather, and he said... Why and Joey Sewell too, an, an old timer, the hardest man to strike out um, at the plate. He said, "Lefty treated you as he saw you. Not he didn't he didn't listen to hearsay." And so he he played uh, he played fair to win, but um, but you know you could trust whatever he was saying, uh, whatever you said to him that it was going to stay with him. So that gives you a wonderful feeling. And Julia Ruth was saying that. Uh, Lefty called her up and said, uh, you know, a uh, sportscaster just called me and asked me all these questions, and I told him I'd have to, you know, uh, slide these questions past you before I answer anything about um, Ruth. And many times I would be at the house and uh, reporters would call up asking questions about Joe, naturally, because who knew Joe better than Dad? And Dad, <laughs> Dad's standard reply was, Call Joe or write him a letter, send him your questions, and tell Joe to call me and tell me what questions that he wants me to answer. And when Joe calls me and tells me the questions that I can answer, then I will. You know, um, it's called privacy, you know. Remember when George Steinbrenner said, I thought what goes on in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse? You know, it's nice to know that 
if you tell your a best friend something that it's not blabbed everywhere. So um, we all think, or most people agree, that Lefty just took this cowboy coat of the coat of the West because he saw his father live it, and you know he, he grew up in a ranching family. You know he was riding horses, he put down cows, a uh, steer that had broken their shins before the coyotes got him. I mean, you're talking, as my mother said, he was a farm boy at, at heart. Like, Lefty Grove came out of the mines. I mean, these kids were not, you know, uh, soft, um, pampered kids. I mean, they, you know, they they had scrappy, hard scrabble lives. And um, it's not... It doesn't surprise me at, at all that he was known as a money pitcher, you know, a guy with a robust killer instinct. You know, so when the pennant was on the line of World Series, they'd throw him in because he had the nerves of a clam. But the dichotomy with Lefty was that he was one of those rare ball players that took the game seriously but not himself. So he would leave the game on the field. You know, it's over. And the only time I ever saw my father shocked by one of my questions, uh, in fact, you were mentioning you were at that Penta show. One of the people who are here was mentioning they were at the New York Penta show. And after the show, I was talking to my dad because we had to do something for a Hall of Fame bulletin. And I said to him, now, Dad, you know, when Joe McCarthy, your manager in uh, 1931, when he was playing you know, manager for the Chicago Cubs, he lost his series, and uh, Wrigley fired him. So, Dad, what did, here's what I said to him. So, Dad, what did Joe McCarthy tell you about losing, you know, that World Series? My father was stunned. I have never seen him shocked. He was totally shocked because he said, for no, no, ball players don't talk about losing. Why? I mean, he was I have never seen him so shocked. He said, why would he sit down and talk to me about losing when the object is to win games? And he said, that's just the mentality. He said, I have no idea. I, he would never talk to me about losing because ballplayers don't talk like that. You lose the game, it's over. You have to do that to be ready for the next game, and it's just not ballplayers. You know, it's, it's every sport. But, you know, I... To me, you know, I thought, oh, that's a perfectly logical question, but <laughs> not to an athlete. No, they, he was just shocked. Well, he, we're, as you've noticed, we haven't really gotten into uh, what, he, what he did on the field as, uh, with this record and that record, and we'll leave that alone, or people may ask those questions after. But I'm almost positive that just about everybody in this room has been to the Baseball Hall of Fame probably multiple times, but not like you've been to the Hall of Fame. And one of my all-time favorite photos is in this book where you have some amazing photographs. And it's the 1972 induction ceremony. And to the left is Yogi Berra. To the right is Sandy Koufax. And in the middle is your dad. And if you could just talk a little bit about that day. It was, you know, uh, it's a really wonderful experience to be <clears throat> at the Hall of Fame within, well, to be at the Hall of Fame anytime, but especially if you're part of a baseball family, 
um, most of all, everyone stays at the Otisaga Hotel, and uh, there's so many festivities going on. But what's wonderful about it is that you get to see all these ball players like Stan Musial and um, you know Ernie Banks and Cool Papa Bell, who would always show up in a very natty uh, uh, white suit, and uh, Ted Williams and all. And they're talking about their grandchildren, <laughs> you know, everything that we would all talk about. And so, you know, it's really, um, it's, it's very, very personable. I mean, a baseball is a big family, you know, and, uh, and that was, and, and that's what's so great about it. Uh, the induction was wonderful, and it's just something, as my father said, that you, that you hope for. It was the... Dad said, uh, it's such a great uh, joy, it's, it's so wonderful to be put in the Hall of Fame, especially where I put so many of the sluggers into the Hall of Fame. You know, he said Ted Williams and Jimmy Fox, the Philadelphia, you know, who, who hit a ball off me that Dad claimed in, 1930, in 1966, that was the white object that Neil Armstrong uh, saw on the moon. And um, yes, it was truly um, a wonderful, wonderful experience. I think what we're going to do now is, because uh, of the timing, we're going to end part one of the podcast, and then we're going to go to questions from the audience. And that just has to do with the way this podcast works. So this is the end of part one. <laughs>